All right, to kick things off this morning, I want to ask a couple of questions and ask you to kind of consider something. If you've got a pen, even be ready and uh, just kind of write down your first reaction to these questions. So question number one, if I have blank, then I'll feel that my life has meaning, I'll know that I have value, I'll, I'll feel significant and secure. Think about that for a second, just kind of write the first one or two things that come to mind. If I have blank... I'll feel my life has meaning, I'll know I have value, and I'll feel significant and secure. Second question. If I'm honest, blank is more fundamental than God to my happiness, meaning in life, and identity. If I'm honest, blank is more fundamental than God to my happiness, my meaning in life, and my identity. How you fill in those blanks tends to be an indicator for what you're putting your hope in. Now, for those of you all that have been Christians for some time, or if you're like me and you, you came to know the Lord at a young age and grew up in the church, uh, it's easy to just jump to the default uh, kind of response of, well, I, I know my hope is in Jesus, right? That, that's where our hope is. We've been trained and we, we know that's the right answer. But I want you to just stop and really be honest with yourself. If we really looked at what we put our hope in, would it truly be Jesus? Or would we find that we actually find a lot of functional saviors to put our trust and our hope in instead of truly, fully, and 100% trusting in Jesus alone? Uh, let me give you an illustration from my life just to kind of be real honest about some of the things God's exposed to me over the years. So hopefully it's a judgment-free zone. Um, in my life, I've learned that when frustration boils up, it tends to shine a light on the fact that I have my hope in something other than Jesus. Um, this really became clear during a season of life when our first son was born. Um, it was an interesting season of life. Um, I resigned from my job so that I could relaunch my financial services practice, which I had done in Dallas. I was going to reestablish things here in the Seattle area. So I had resigned from my job, and uh, several weeks later, we found out the week I resigned, we had gotten pregnant. And uh, so here I am in this highly stressful time uh, where all of a sudden we've got a baby on the way, and I am trying to relaunch my practice and, and a lot of instability and uh, a lot of fear. Um, so working hard. And, and then um, when Gideon was born, he didn't sleep well for the first year. And when I say he didn't sleep well, I mean he literally woke up three and four times a night for the entire year. Um, he would at times sleep all the way through the night for like two or three days, and then he'd start teething or get sick. And, and he would basically start waking up three and four times a night again for like three weeks before we could finally get him to sleep through the night again. And it happened two or three times, and then he'd start waking up again. So literally for the first year, uh, we were waking up multiple times a night, extremely exhausted, emotionally drained, physically drained. And, and for any of y'all that know me, I love to go have uh, lots of adventures. I love skiing. I love backpacking and whitewater river guiding and love being in the outdoors. I enjoy going and being physically active during the week so that I feel good when I go out to do those adventures. And in the midst of all of our exhaustion, I wasn't finding time for the big adventures. I wasn't finding the energy to go to the gym or stay active. I wasn't eating well, which caused my health to deteriorate even more. And honestly, I began getting really frustrated. Um, I was frustrated at all that I felt like I was having to sacrifice in life and um, frustrated at the circumstances that just seemed so heavy and overwhelming. And in the midst of my frustration, uh, honestly, was getting really short 
and unloving towards Kami uh, would take a lot of my frustration out on her and at times even be frustrated with her. And in the midst of that, I feel like what God began to show me was that my frustration was showing what my functional saviors were, the things that I was actually putting my hope in instead of truly having my hope in Jesus. Interestingly, I I had a vision of what I wanted my life to look like. Um, And and for me, my hope was a life where I had the energy and the freedom to go do all of these things that I felt were really life-giving and fun. And so when circumstances caused me to surrender aspects of my life that I was hoping for, um, I knew too much to blame God, right? Like, God's a good God, so this can't be his fault. So I was blaming everything else. Uh, I was taking my frustration out on circumstances, and then when, when I couldn't change or fix those, I would get frustrated at other things. Basically, I was looking for somewhere to direct my frustration. I felt justified, like life isn't happening the way I thought it should. And all of this just exposed that I really had a lot of idols. Um, I knew enough not to blame God, so it took a while before God helped me get to the place where I was honest with myself about the fact that I was really frustrated with God. I was really angry that he wasn't giving the life to me that I thought we had worked out. Like in my mind, I'm being good and faithful servants, so God should be giving me A, B, and C. And, and when he didn't, I was kind of like, what's the deal? I'm kind of upholding my end of the bargain. Why aren't you, God? And, and ultimately, I wasn't getting my idols, and I was frustrated with God for it, and he exposed that to me. And man, led to a lot of conviction, uh, a lot of opportunities for re- repentance and uh, prayer. And in the midst of that season, beginning to see the ugliness of my idolatry, beginning to see that I actually had my hope in a lot of other things and not truly in Jesus the way I had thought, uh, we kind of changed our prayers. Um, before and in the midst of it, I had been praying that God would just fix the circumstances. I would come to him with just long list of, Lord, help change this, fix this. Why is this so hard? Uh, and, and I began to change. I began to realize, wait a minute, um, my hope, Lord, should be in you regardless of circumstances. So we begin to pray, Lord, help us to learn to be at peace with you in the midst of this. Help me to trust you in the midst of the hard times we're dealing with. Help me to be at peace and to walk with you and abide with you and to be faithful uh, to you and to love my wife and to uh, just to give you glory and to live life in a way that you'd be glorified even in the midst of the hard times that we're working through. I would still pray for change. I mean, I still wanted him to fix a lot of the mess we were in, uh, but my hope wasn't any longer on whether or not the circumstances got better. God helped me to kind of move my trust and my hope to where it was on him, regardless of the circumstances. As you uh, hear this, perhaps you can relate to this. Um, again, I think if, if we were honest with ourselves, especially those of us that, that have been Christians for some time, you can probably relate. There's probably been some time um, where God's exposed to you that you're actually putting your hope and your trust in something other than Jesus. We know he should be where our hope is, but we find our hope often is, is actually hung on something else, uh, idolatry and, and distortions. And so today, as we walk through this uh, passage, the author in Hebrews is going to show us where we should find our hope and why we should find our hope in Jesus. So for those of you that are believers, and, and my encouragement would be, don't, don't tune this out real quick. Don't think, oh, another message about our hopes in Jesus. I've heard this sermon before. Uh, don't tune it out too quickly. Really listen. Pray that God would help you to listen to what the author in Hebrews has to say about why we should find our hope in Jesus. And for those of you all that are here that aren't believers, uh, that, that don't know Jesus yet, 
I want you to hear, and I hope you'll learn why we find such hope in Jesus and why it is such a message of hope that God gives us. So hopefully uh, this will be a really helpful and relevant message for everyone in here today. Before we dive in, I, I want to look back real quick just where we're at in Hebrews. So it's a long book, and we've been breaking it up week by week, taking little bits at a time. Um, a number of weeks ago, uh, back in the early parts of chapter 5, the, the author was starting to talk about how Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he was building up to this really important piece that he's going to talk about, and he's going to spend a lot of the rest of Hebrews making reference to this Melchizedekian priest. Uh, but before he dove in, he kind of hit pause, and in, in chapter 5, verse 11, he took a detour or kind of put a parenthesis and said, hold on, before I continue with that, I want to stop and make sure you're with me. We need to pay attention here. And he offers them a warning. And uh, this warning um, he, he brings to them, he is concerned about their spiritual immaturity. And, and verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 11, um, he says, man, you need milk, not solid food. I'm concerned. You should be moving on to maturity, but you're still stuck in immaturity. So he offers them that warning. Uh, and then even further, he says, don't drift away. If you drift away, it'll show that you never actually knew Jesus in the first place. So, hey, press on to maturity. Don't get lazy and certainly don't drift away. And he offers this warning. He says, don't fall away. Hold firm until the end. And then in chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, he follows up that warning with a word of encouragement. And he says, hey, based on how you've loved one another, how you've served the saints or, or the Christians, I really believe that, that you guys are true believers. I believe that you're holding firm. And so I want to encourage you in that. And that brings us then to today where he kind of finishes out this warning and encouragement by saying, hey, be encouraged because you have something that gives great hope. And we're going to talk today about what that hope is. And then next week, he kind of, this is the end of that, that parenthetical warning. And so next week, he jumps right back into this whole idea of Jesus as our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to really dive into what all of that means. So that then brings us to the passage for today, which is Hebrews 6, uh, verses 13 through 20. And uh, I'm going to read and invite you to just kind of read along uh, quietly uh, with me. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So in these verses, uh, we're going to be unpacking today, the author is going to show us how our hope is in Jesus. Um, he begins by providing an example of Abram or Abraham, and I'm just going to tell you up front, I'm going to get both of those wrong. He starts as Abram, it changes to Abraham along the way, 
I'm going to just intermix them because I'm, I'm going to make that mistake. So just forewarning. But he starts with that example. And, and for them, as, a, as the original hearers, uh, a Jewish Christian audience, they would have been very familiar with Abraham. Abraham was a big deal in the Jewish cultural history. And so they would have known all about him. When they referenced Abraham, they would have immediately understood all of that, uh, all that that implied. Uh, for us, we might not be as familiar with Abraham and the story of Abraham. So I'm going to quickly run through and hit some highlights from his story just to kind of set the stage and to give you an overview of who Abraham is. Um, I'm going to encourage you, don't worry too much about trying to take notes as I run through this. All of these notes are on our website at soundcitybiblechurch.com. And so you can go and, and get these different scripture references. Don't feel like you need to keep up with me because I'm going to move fairly quickly through this. Um, but before I dive in, let me pray and then we'll keep going. Lord, I thank you for the chance to come and open your word, and thank you that we get to be in a place where we can come and learn about you through the teaching and proclamation of your word. I pray that you would be gracious to speak through me and that you would stir all of our hearts with a deep understanding of what you would have us learn from these verses, that we would understand what our hope is in and why we have such great hope in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would just bless our time together as we work through this passage today. Amen. So the story of Abraham is in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. Uh, it's in the Old Testament, for those of you all that uh, maybe are not as familiar with the Bible. Um, it starts, uh, at least Abraham's story, starts in Genesis chapter 11. This is on the heels of uh, Noah and the ark, and it talks about Noah's three sons, one of which was Shem, and it talks about his descendants. And in that line of descendants, we come to Abraham, or Abram, as he was originally called, and in Genesis 12, Abram, uh, we see that God comes to Abram and the Lord says to him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I'll show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and uh, to him who dishonors you, I will curse and in all of you, the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's 75 years old, Abram's 75 years old, and God comes to him and says, hey, I've got somewhere for you to go, and I've got a blessing and a promise for you. So Abram listens to this promise of God, and he goes to the land that God shows him, and he goes to Canaan. And when he gets there, God once again affirms that promise and says that he'll give that land to Abram's descendants. Um, so here, God has just come and made this pro promise directly to Abram. But then we see in Genesis 12, there was a famine, and he had to go somewhere for food, so he goes to Egypt. And this is where it gets interesting. On his way to Egypt, he realizes his wife, Sarai, is beautiful, and he says, when we walk into Egypt and they see you're beautiful, they will likely kill me to take you for themselves. So for the sake of my own life, tell them you're my sister. This isn't exactly an astounding story of faith, which I love scripture because it doesn't uh, perhaps you've been to other churches or grew up in a place where they made all of the Old Testament characters sound like big heroes. You need to be like Abraham, a man of great faith. Uh, but the truth is, he was not a man of great faith the whole time. Uh, right off the bat, he's afraid, doesn't know what to do, so he lies and gives his, basically sets his wife up to be taken away from him to save his own hide. Not exactly a, a great move of faith. So sure enough, the Egyptians see her. Uh, see that she's beautiful. The Pharaoh gives gifts to Abram and takes her to be his wife, but the Lord protects her and comes to Pharaoh in a dream and says, don't take this woman. She's somebody else's wife and afflicts Pharaoh's house with uh, great disease. 
And so they bring uh, uh, Sarah back to Abram and say, hey, why did you do this? Uh, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's your sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. So they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So God's gracious. He brings Sarah back to him, and they leave with a lot of possessions. Next, we see in the story uh, in Genesis 13, a scene where Abram and Lot, um, Lot was Abram's nephew, basically both of them had huge herds, lots of people, and the land wasn't producing enough to support all of them and their herds. So Abram comes to Lot and says, hey, instead of fighting, um, why don't you pick whichever direction you want to go? You go that way, I'll go the other way, and that way we can both find places where our herds can survive and our people can survive. Now, this looked like he was trusting God. Instead of um, choosing the choice land, actually, uh, Abram gave Lot the first choice. He said, you pick where you want to go. And it seemed that he was trusting that, you know what, God's given me a promise. I trust he'll take care of us, so I don't need to try to jockey for position here. So that was kind of an encouraging move. And after they separated, God once again promised Abram that he would make his offspring great. Then in Genesis 14, we see this interesting story where Melchizedek, comes out and blesses Abram, which is this whole idea of the Melchizedekian priesthood that Jesus fulfills. Um, and so that's an interesting story, and we'll unpack that more later, but that's where Melchizedek comes from. Then in Genesis 15, God formally establishes his covenant with Abram. Uh, I won't get into the details, but it's interesting because it used to be in their culture that when there was a covenant, uh, both parties would kind of make this covenant, and, and the way they would do it, it was kind of indicating, hey, if I lie, then you can take my life. I am promising this will be done, and both of them go through the covenant so that each one has a vested interest and has to follow through on something. But in this case, God went through and made the covenant on his own. Abram didn't take part. Abram actually was put to sleep while God fulfilled the covenant or created the covenant on his own. So it was a unilateral covenant, meaning God was saying, hey, this one's on me. I'm going to fulfill this. It's not on you. There's nothing you can do. I am going to do this. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to fulfill my promises to you all on my own. In Genesis 16, right after God has made this covenant, covenant made this promise, the next thing recorded is Sarah gets impatient and gives her servant Hagar to Abraham and says, hey, go have a child with her since God's not giving me one. So once again, we see an interesting display that, that Abraham's not exactly giving his full trust that God's got things covered. God hasn't given him a child through his wife, so he goes and takes matters into his own hands to try to come up with his own heir. Right on the heels of that, um, God comes to them and renames them from Abram and Sarah to Abraham and Sarah, and God repeats his covenant promise, and he promised Abraham and Sarah, now their new names, that they will have a son, that they're not going to have to do it through some other means, that God is going to give Sarah a son so that his legacy can continue through his own uh, uh, marital, um, you know, through his own wife, his own name can carry on. And he tells them when they have their son, he's to call them Isaac. Abram at the time was 99, Sarah was 90 years old, and it says she was past the age of childbearing. And then we see in um, Genesis 20, here God's affirmed this covenant, and he said, I will do this. Uh, Abraham ends up traveling through somebody else's land, a man named Abimelech, and once again, for fear that he might be killed, he tells Sarah to say that he's, she is his sister instead of his wife. Once again, she's taken, 
Um, and God comes to Abimelech in a dream before he touches her in any way and says, hey, she is someone else's wife, return her. And Abimelech, like Pharaoh, returns her and says, why did you do this? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? So uh, Abimelech sends Abraham and Sarah on his way, and God protects them in that way. Despite Abraham's faithlessness that God would care for them, uh, God protects her and brings her back. And then shortly after that, we see in Genesis 21, Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah. It says, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born. And as we're hearing the story, you think, finally, God's given an heir. He's fulfilled the promise. Praise God. And it's fascinating because he could have provided Isaac at any time. Uh, but I find it intriguing. He waits till long after the age of childbearing. So it would be clear God had provided the son. If it had happened at any other point, they would have thought, well, of course, you're in childbearing age, y'all are uh, you know, healthy, why wouldn't you have a child? But the fact that it was after childbearing age, there was no way to look at that child unless you said this was a miraculous work of God providing the promise that he said he would do. So they have their son, and then something interesting happens. In Genesis 22, the next chapter, uh, God tests Abraham by asking him to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, a burnt offering. Um, obviously, it's several years later because his son has grown a little, but in Genesis 22, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. They traveled for three days, and then a few verses later, it says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand fire and the knife, and they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, uh, Father, uh, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went on, both of them together. It's a fascinating scene because here Abraham's being tested to see if he truly trusts God. Is he willing to be obedient or um, has he begun to put his hope in his son? In essence, it was like God saying, hey, I'm the one that has made the promise and the provision here. Are you trusting in me or are you beginning to put your hope in your son? Are you still loving me above all else or have you begun to love your son more than me? Are you still going to be obedient to me? Are you willing to let go of what's most precious to walk in trust and obedience with me? It was interesting, one commentator talked about all of the hope hung on Isaac, and, and I took issue with it because um, it says in uh, Hebrews eleven nineteen. we'll get here later, but it says, uh, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So what we see is Abraham was actually still putting his full hope in God, that God would fulfill the promise that he had given. Even if he killed his son Isaac, he trusted somehow God would work it out. Somehow, even if that meant raising Isaac from the dead or some other plan, he trusted his hope was actually in God, not in Isaac or the circumstances. So then it says they got to the right place, they built an altar, they put the wood upon it, and Abraham bound up his son. And Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and he said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham said, here I am. And he said, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him there was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son Isaac. 
So right on the heels of that, the angel of the Lord affirms God's promise to Abraham uh, in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, and this is what is quoted in the Hebrews passage. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you and your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sands on the seashore. Um, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And then we see uh, in the next passages in Genesis that Abraham passes away, dies at the age of 145. So this is a fascinating story. Like I said, it's, it's, it's encouraging to me because the scripture is so honest. It doesn't have a bunch of these iconic figures that we could never live up to. Uh, Abraham is shown as having tons of moments of doubt and faithlessness, and yet God is still faithful. And so I want to run back through his story, and I want to look at it through a few different lenses uh, with you. The first would be the lens of the problem. Um, we see that Abraham messed up in some big ways, right? Like, like trying to you know, save your own hide and offering your wife up by saying she's your sister, definitely a big mess up, right guys? Um, it's Valentine's Day, so if y'all have forgotten, uh, that's a small mess up, wives, like that's a big mess up Abraham showed us, so have a little grace for your husbands if they forgot. Husbands, you've now got forewarning, go do something about it after the service. Um, but he messed up in some big ways, and then left to his own, Abraham had no hope, um, he and Sarah weren't able to produce an heir, and so he didn't have an heir or a legacy, which was a big problem in that day. It was a much more significant thing then, but, but it was through your firstborn son that your name and your legacy would be passed, and Abraham had no legacy, so he had a problem. But there was a plan, and Abraham's hope was established by God's plan. As I said, uh, Abraham didn't come to God with a plan. God came to him with a plan. When we see in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you. This is encouraging to me because uh, it wasn't like Abraham had to look around and think of a good plan and think of a way to impress God and earn God's favor. He didn't come to God and say, Hey, I've been thinking, I've got this idea for how we can make a lot for your name and how we can make your glory well known. Like, check this plan out, God. What do you think? Will you bless this plan I'm bringing to you? It didn't work that way. God came to him with the plan that he had established and said, hey, here's what I plan to do. All Abraham was asked to do is to walk in obedience and to trust in him for the plan he was going to execute. So Abraham's hope was established by God's plan. And then Abraham's hope was assured by God's promise. We see in Hebrews 6, 13 through 15, the passage we're looking at today, it says, when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now this is, uh, that quote is from Genesis twenty-two seventeen, which was right after Abraham had been tested to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. And once God had seen he was willing, God came back and affirmed his promise. And, and as he's making that promise and he's swearing by himself, what he in essence was saying is, hey, I'm, I'm God. There's no one else I can swear by. I can't, I can't really go swear by Bob because he lies. I can't really swear by Tim because, you know, you can't trust him. Like, I can't swear by any of you guys. Y'all all drop the ball, but, but I'm God. I don't drop the ball. My character is steadfast, so I'll swear by myself. I'm not just going to let my character speak for itself. I am giving you my word. You can trust me. I have a promise for you. And so Abraham's hope was assured by God's promises to him. 
Remember, there wasn't a big requirement put on Abraham. God didn't come and say, if you'll do all of these things, I might have a promise for you down the road, but prove yourself to me first. God came to him with a plan, knowing Abraham would make all sorts of mistakes along the way, but God said, I'm going to do this for you and through you. It was God's promise. Nothing was required of Abraham, though he invited him to be obedient and to walk with faith and trust. And then Abraham's hope was made possible by God's provision. Guys, this is super encouraging. If you think about it, God provided the son Isaac. And as I said, God could have done it in the natural course of things, but he waited until after her childbearing years were over. Uh, when one point when he came and said, hey, you're going to have a son within a year, Sarah actually laughed and said, how can that happen? I'm, I'm done. Like, there is no childbearing left in me. And it was as if God was saying, that's exactly right. I don't ever want you to think this had anything to do with you. This is my work, my glory to be displayed. And I'm doing it in a way so everyone will know it was me that showed up and did something miraculous because I'm more worried about my glory than your happiness. Trust in me. So God made a provision. God also provided the ram. Here he's, he's led Abraham out to sacrifice. And somebody said, stop. I'm glad to know you trust me. And really, this is a foreshadowing of how I am going to sacrifice my son on your behalf. But until that time, here's something, here's a sacrifice, and he provides the ram. God made the promises, and then God fulfilled it, and that gave Abraham great hope. Abraham, hope, his hope wasn't in his ability to produce an heir. His hope wasn't in uh, his faithfulness, because as we said already, he made a lot of mistakes along the way. His hope was fully in God. His hope was fully in God's faithfulness to fulfill his plan and to fulfill the promises that he had made. So Abraham's hope was firmly rooted in the fact that God was making the provision to fulfill all of his promises. And then Abraham's hope was extended uh, beyond him, uh, meaning the hope perpetuated it's important to understand this. God's plan, his promises, his provision, they weren't intended to terminate on Abraham. All of this wasn't done just so Abraham could be happy and live a blessed life. Um, it didn't end with him. It was intended so that through him, God could bring a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, as well as a number of places where God was communicating his promise to Abraham. He said, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. The idea was, Abraham, I'm, I'm going to do this, but it's not just for you. It's so that through you, I can bless others. Now, ultimately, that was through his line came the Messiah, Jesus, who then died and, and became a savior and brought blessing to all of us by giving all of us a chance to not just be a part of, of, of an earthly great nation, but be part of God's chosen people to have an eternal kingdom and to be a part of his family eternally. So ultimately, we're the recipients of that promise God made Abraham. And, and that kind of switches to the next thing I want to look through, which is our story. That was Abraham's story and how he found hope. How do we find hope? How does this relate to us? What was the author trying to say to his audience there? Well, first of all, like Abraham, we have a problem. Uh, there's sin and because of sin, we have no lasting legacy. Um, now, sin's not necessarily a popular topic, but, but at its core, in a simple way of thinking about it, um, sin uh, can be described as all of us at some point have chosen to pursue our own interests, our own glory, instead of being obedient to God and seeking his glory. And at a basic level, when we have a holy and perfect God and we say, hey, I'm going to choose my own interests, I'm going to be disobedient, and I'm going to seek my own pleasure and glory instead of what honors you, at its basic level, that's sin. 
But man, that's a huge and grievous thing. And that sin actually deserves death. A holy and perfect God can't live in the presence of sinful, selfish people. And so we see Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And even less popular than talking about sin is talking about the fact that there is death. For those that don't know Jesus, there is eternal separation and there is a place called hell where there is suffering and separation from God for all of eternity. While there is a big problem, there's a plan. And guys, our hope is established by God's plan. Uh, Romans 6.23 continues. Luckily, it doesn't end at the wages of sin is death. It continues to say the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Note that this is a free gift. It's from God. It's eternal life. And it's through Christ, our Lord. This is God's plan for things. And interestingly, this starts, and we see this echoed from the beginning of Scripture all the way through. Um, Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve had eaten from the fruit of the tree in the Garden of Eden, um, God walks in to communicate the curses and consequences for their sin and their choice to be disobedient. And he says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He'll bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And in this particular phrase is the first communication of the gospel. And, and we would call it, it's the seed of the gospel, meaning everything was there that would eventually grow into the full communication of the gospel we now know through Jesus. But at that point, it was just, it was just a seed. It was the first telling. It hadn't blossomed into the full understanding. But God was basically saying, hey, I already have a plan in place to how I'm going to redeem and restore my people. And I'm going to send my son one day and he's going to uh, bruise the head. He's going to crush the head of the serpent, meaning he's going to conquer sin and death. So right off the bat in Genesis, God says, I've got a plan for this. I know y'all sinned, but you know what? I've got it covered. I've got a plan for this. Interestingly, in Ephesians, which is in the New Testament, so many, many books later, it says in uh, Ephesians 1 verse 4, even as he chose us, meaning even as God chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. What it's saying is God had a plan, not only starting in Genesis, but actually before the world had even formed, he had a plan in place. And that plan was he had already chosen who he was going to redeem and restore, who he was going to make holy and blameless to make a part of his kingdom. So when Abraham is here and he hears the plan, that was just an echoing of the plan that had already been put in motion. God's plan to restore us back into a right relationship with him, to overcome the work of sin that separated us and to bring us back into a right relationship, a unified relationship with God. And we see that echo throughout scripture. And church, that should give us great hope. God has a plan. And our hope is assured by God's promises. In Hebrews 6, 16 through 18, back to the passage that we're unpacking today, it says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, which is us now, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that two Now, by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I mentioned this earlier, but when he says, by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, it's saying his character should be enough 
But he also then gives a trustworthy promise and a, and a covenant and commitment, which is also unbreakable, so that we're doubly assured. I like to think of it in this way. Um, no one wants to be made a fool. None of us want to put our trust in something and then be let down and look foolish in front of people. Like, God, why did you trust in that? Of course that wasn't going to work. None of us want to be a fool. And it's like God's telling us, hey, you won't be made a fool. You can trust in me. I've got this. This is my promise to you. I will do this. And we can see God's promise to send a Messiah, uh, to send a Savior, to send someone to, to restore things, echo throughout the Old Testament. We talked about how it started in Genesis, but then it expanded with Noah, and it expanded with Abraham and Moses, and it kept expanding, and it was echoed again and again, and God kept saying over and over, hey, I have a plan. I have a Messiah coming. I've got this covered. I am telling you, I will bring a means to redeem and to restore a people to myself. And we see this echo throughout the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes and he fulfills all of those promises. But interestingly, it doesn't stop there. In the New Testament, we see God continues affirming his promises to us. We see verses like Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It says, in him, meaning in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So God's saying, hey, I promised that I would send a Messiah, and he has come. And under, under, his, blood, uh, under his blood, you are covered. I see you as holy and blameless. I see you as my children. I don't see you as sinful. I see you as, as a redeemed people. We're now back in a right relationship. But because you're still on earth and you still live in a broken world, um, I want to send a promise because until you make it to heaven, you won't experience the fullness of the promise I've given you. See, someday you'll be in heaven and you'll be out of the broken world and you will be in my presence and we will have fully restored relationship. You'll get to dwell in my presence. But until then, so you know that what I've said is true, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to be like a seal. Like they used to have a seal. The king would put his stamp or his seal so people would know it's official. The, the king has put his mark on this. And the Holy Spirit is our guarantee. It's our guarantee that there is an inheritance waiting for us. In church, that should give us great hope. Our hope is assured by God's promises. And then our hope is made possible by God's provision. And this should give us great hope indeed. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And think about an anchor uh, when ships are out, uh, when they're out sailing around, like there's no sleeping at the wheel, there's no rest. You've got to make sure that you're staring on a good course and you're not heading for any danger. Uh, so you only really get to rest when you can find somewhere safe and you can drop anchor. And when it's really sure and steadfast and anchored in well, you know you're not going anywhere. You know you're not in danger, which means you can actually gather rest. So think about an anchor for the soul as a place where you have peace and rest. And for us, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As we unpack these verses, I think there's two important references or parallels to consider. Number one, Abraham's son Isaac as a sacrifice and God's son, Jesus, as the perfect sacrifice. And think about the, the pictures. I talked to you about uh, when Abraham uh, was called to sacrifice Isaac, he put wood on his back and he went up a mountain to where the sacrifice was going to happen. And when God sent his son, Jesus, 
As a perfect sacrifice, Jesus had the wooden cross put, a, put upon his back, and he carried it up to the mountain where he would be sacrificed. Abraham didn't withhold his son, and neither did God withhold his son from us. And in both cases, God actually provided the sacrifice. He, he called Abraham to test him to, to sacrifice Isaac, but then God stopped him and provided the ram for the sacrifice. And then later, God provided Jesus as a perfect sacrifice for us. We see that God provides to make the provision uh, for the promises that he's given us. The other parallel to consider is the Old Testament sacrificial system um, versus Jesus as the fulfillment of that temporary system. It says uh, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Well, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, um, it was set up in a way where you had the temple that, that, that men had built, and in the innermost part of the temple, there was a curtain, and, and once a year, the priest would go behind the curtain to make sacrifices on behalf of the sins of Israel, and God's presence would descend, descend and in the presence of God, this priest would make those sacrifices to kind of make amends for all the sin, and that would bring a temporary um, um, restoration to the relationship. It, it would cover their sins so that God could once again, in essence, dwell in their presence, and they could have the glory of God there with them. Um, but this was an imperfect system because every year they had to redo the sacrifices. They weren't a perfect sacrifice. But Jesus, when God sent his son, Jesus fulfilled that in a permanent and a perfect way. When Jesus came down, he lived a perfect life, so he was able to be a perfect sacrifice. And when he went to the cross, he received the fullness of God's wrath upon himself, meaning our sin deserves just wrath. God is just to pour his wrath out against our sin, but instead of putting his wrath against us, he poured all of the wrath for all of our sin on Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross, shedding his blood, having his body broken, he died, was buried, and then he rose again, conquering sin and death. And when he rose again, instead of now interceding as, as, as the high priest did in the temple that was made by man's hands, Jesus ascended into heaven. Now he sits in heaven, in the heavenly throne room at God's right hand, interceding for us in the very presence of God. So far better than the high priest who would make an earthly sacrifice in the earthly temple made by man's hands, Jesus is sitting in God's presence, interceding on our behalf in church. That should give us great hope. There's a, an illustration, um, and since <laughs> I'm learning coming from Texas, apparently I have a different repertoire of illustrations. Uh, I don't know if y'all have heard this or not, but there's a big difference between the chicken and the pig. Um, when you think about breakfast, the chicken is invested in breakfast, whereas the pig is committed to breakfast. Some of y'all, that might take a while. The chicken provides eggs. He's invested. The pig is on the plate. He is committed. When we think about the example that we were given in Abraham, Abraham was truly committed to trusting God. We see he was willing to sacrifice his own son. There was nothing held back. But that was just a foreshadowing. The true commitment was Jesus. Jesus was fully committed to trusting God, fully committed to trusting God's promise and his plan, and even to the point of trusting him to death, trusting him right up to the cross. And through that, he became the provision that fulfilled all of God's plan and all of God's promises to us. 
Jesus is that fulfillment. His commitment paved the way so that we can now have a right and restored relationship with God. And again, church, that is where we find our great hope. And then there's perpetuation. Our hope extends beyond us. Uh, Just as God was a blessing or blessed Abraham so that he could be a blessing to others, it's similar for us. The gospel doesn't terminate on us. Uh, when we hear this great hope and we hear the gospel, it should do far more than make us say, "Woohoo! I'm good. Thank you, God. Life is good now. It doesn't stop with us. It should compel us to want to share this hope with others. Uh, this is why the Second Corinthians, I've shared this verse a number of times, but it talks about God's made us ambassadors so that we can bring the hope to others. The verse itself says, um, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 20. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he was entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God's making his appeal through us. So church, because we have such a great hope, because we understand God had a plan and he made promises and then he made the provision for that plan so that we could have a right and restored relationship with him, because of the great hope that gives us, we should be compelled and want to share that hope with others so that they too could know about the hope that we have in Jesus. So I want to look now at how does this apply? What does this look like in life? My first encouragement is to have hope. And I want you to be very careful about how you hear that. When I say have hope, um, I am not just providing some trite saying. Uh, It's not a platitude. This is certainly not prosperity theology. When I say have hope, I'm not just saying uh, have hope. All things work together for good. Perhaps you've heard people say that before. When people say, oh, it's okay, all things work together for good, it's kind of like they're just trying to say, oh, it's all right, be happy. But that's kind of out of context. Romans 8.28 is where they get that. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But we have to keep reading to get the full context. Romans 8.30 says, those who he predestined, he called. And those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. What it's saying is, yeah, all things work together for good, but that doesn't mean, oh, Jesus is going to come make your life happy here on earth. What he's saying is, for those who God chose, they will be redeemed. They will experience eternal salvation, and they will live in heaven with him forever. There is hope coming. That's where our hope is. But hear me in this church, there are going to be hard times and it should not surprise us. You will experience brokenness and pain and suffering while you're living on this earth because truthfully, all of us have sinned and are gonna incur challenges that come out of being in a sinful and broken world and all of us have been sinned against and are gonna be suffering under the pain of the sins committed against us. We live in a broken world, but what we do have is hope of what's to come. And we have tastes of that hope that God has given us now because we are seen through the blood of Christ. He does see us as his children now, and he's given us the Holy Spirit now as a promise. So we have elements where we can find great hope, but our true hope is for what's to come. There's no promises. It'll be a happy life. 
when things get hard, it is okay for God to change our circumstances. But know this, church, our hope can't be found in whether or not God fixes all of our hard times here on earth. Our hope is found in Him regardless of our circumstances. That's why Philippians 4 through 7 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Uh, it's like he's saying, hey, rejoice, but that doesn't mean act like Pollyanna and like everything's wonderful and, and ignore the fact that things are hard. Be reasonable. It's going to be hard. We don't put on some false air of happiness like God's made everything perfect here on earth. There are still hard times. Be reasonable. But no, the Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus. It's like the author saying, I know there's hard time, but regardless of how things go, we can know that God is sovereign. We can know that he has an eternal plan and he wins in the end. And in that, we can have great hope. So while we face a hard life and when we face challenges, we can still have great hope because we know we have a God that has a plan and has promised us that he will fulfill that plan and he has given us an eternal hope. We have great hope in that. My encouragement to you would also be to have faith. Church, uh, having faith really starts with believing God's word and we can't believe in his word unless we know his word. And so I wanna really encourage Church, we should all be reading and studying and learning God's word. I've heard from too many people say, like, I don't really read church. That's why I, uh, I don't really read uh, the Bible. That's why I come to church on Sundays. I just, I don't know how to make sense of it. Man, that should never be the case for us as Christians. We should all know that God's word is approachable to us. Um, there are certainly elements I don't fully understand. So I go and ask Pastor Shane and Pastor Aaron, or I ask the people in my community group, but there are commentaries. There are things that make it accessible. We don't have to... You don't have to be super smart like Pastor Shane and have multiple doctorates to understand scripture. You don't even have to be a smart aleck like Pastor Aaron. Like, <laughs> God's word is accessible to all of us. So church, don't feel that this is an unapproachable book. Open the Bible, study the Bible, come to learn God's word, believe in God's word. As we know God's word, we can believe in his plan that's exposed throughout scripture. We can believe in God's promises that are shown throughout Scripture. And we can believe in God's provision, Jesus, that is explained throughout Scripture. So church, have faith in God's word. And then lastly, have patience. God had a specific promise to Abram, and it took a long time for that to happen. But he had faith and he had patience. Um, and the truth is, he never even saw the fulfillment of what that plan was because it was a plan that God intended to fulfill through Jesus, which came generations and generations later. But he was patient to the end, knowing that God was faithful. And for us, again, I want to remind you, it's not a prosperity theology. Uh, God's plan is for his glory to be revealed, not for our comfort. And so life might be hard at times, church. We live in a broken world, but while there's pain and suffering, we still have hope and we need to be patient through all that we face. So my encouragement to you is like Abraham, be patient. Um, in closing, um, I began by talking uh, about how when Gideon, my son, was born, God exposed a lot of my functional saviors, the things that I was putting my hope in instead of Jesus. 
Um, when Denver was born, our second son, who's just over a year old now, um, when we first got pregnant, it was in the middle of when Mars Hill was just starting to face a lot of controversy and difficulty. Um, I was being installed as an elder here and assuming more and more responsibility at the local church level. Um, so my span of care was expanding. Um, because of all that was going on and the controversy and caring for people here um, and with another baby on the way and another son, uh, certainly had uh, very little time for fun adventures, didn't get to stay active, was struggling to stay healthy. Uh, there was a lot of people that were hurting and asking for time, so we had very little time as a family uh, to rest and recover. And, and ultimately, I was exhausted. Um, I sure wasn't getting to get out and have a lot of fun and skiing and things like I like. And, and I would be lying if I said, based on what I learned with Gideon, uh, that I was frustration-free and, and really finding all of my hope in Jesus. Um, I was frustrated a lot about a number of things. What was different is I was much quicker to let God use my frustration to shine a light on where I was finding my hope instead of in the Lord. I was much quicker to let him show me my idols so that I could confess those and repent and uh, try to find my hope recentered back on Jesus. Um, I was also much quicker to involve my wife and others to help expose those things and walking things out in community. And, and I can't put a neat little bow on this. It's not like uh, over the past few years, now I really walk in a consistent hope uh, without any idols. The truth is, every time a frustration comes up, I'm reminded that I still have to guard against my idolatry and I have to guard against putting my hope in things other than Jesus. So it's a constant work of confession and repentance and trying to recenter my hope on the Lord. As a family, we've made a few intentional changes to our prayer habits. When we're facing hard times or challenging circumstances, we really try to be intentional to start by saying, Lord, regardless of what's going on, help us to abide with you Help us to trust you and help us to find our hope in you alone, not in these circumstances. Help us to walk in a way that would honor you in the midst of whatever hard times we're facing. We still continue and pray and ask that he'll change our circumstances. But then we come back and we once again end by saying, Lord, if you choose not to change the circumstances, let us walk with you. Let us be faithful. Let us honor you in the midst of this. We pray to have hope, faith, and patience. And my prayer today for you, church, is that you would also learn to have hope, faith, and patience, and that you would find great joy in sharing that hope with others and perpetuating the good news. Because we have a great God and because we have a great hope, we now want to have some time to respond in prayer and worship and singing songs and worshiping through several means. Uh, the first way we're going to respond in worship is through offerings. So if the financial stewards would come forward and, and go ahead and pass the buckets, um, the reason that we spend this time is worshiping God, showing him, Lord, you are Lord of everything we have. You've given us every blessing so that we can be a blessing to others, and giving is a way to help perpetuate the work that God's doing. If you're a guest here, please know you are under no obligation or expectation to give. This is something for our regular attenders. You're certainly welcome to give if you would like, but there's no expectation. We're glad to have you here with nothing expected. While they're passing the offering plates, I want to raise a couple of discussion questions for you to consider, and if you're part of a community group, these would be great for you all to talk with. When you're, excuse me, when are you angry? When are you anxious? When do you seek escape? And are those underlying moments pointing to any idols in your life, or are there maybe areas where your hope isn't in Jesus? 
Again, as Christians, it's easy to have the right answer and know your hope is in Jesus, but take time to be really honest about where there are hidden idols because we all have them. Next, discuss what idols God may be exposing in your life by how you answer the following statements. If I have blank, then I'll feel my life has meaning. I'll know I have value. I'll feel significant and secure. Or the second question, if I'm honest, blank is more fundamental than God to my happiness, my meaning in life, and my identity. Uh, For any of y'all that are new, if you're struggling to write them all down, those are in the handout that you were given when you walked in the door. As well as these prayer points. Church, I would encourage you to pray that God would show you any idolatry in your heart, where your heart uh, may be prone to hope and trust in anything other than Jesus. I encourage you to also pray that God would help you and help our whole church surrender any idols to learn to trust in Jesus alone as the fulfillment of our hope. The next thing we're going to do is take communion uh, as the worship band begins to play. When we take communion, this is a special time for us to remember how God has given provision to fulfill his plans and his promises. It's a reminder because as we take the blood and we dip it in the wine or the juice per your conscience, uh, the, the, the bread reminds us that Jesus willingly let his body be broken and he willingly shed his blood so that God would see us through the lens of his blood and see us as our sins being covered. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We can walk boldly into the presence of God under the blood of Jesus because we are seen as redeemed and forgiven. That's where our great hope is. And so we take communion to remind us of that. So what I'll do is I will have you stand. I'm going to pray, and then you can come forward and take communion as you're ready as the band begins to lead us in our time of song and worship. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a glorious God. We thank you for giving us your scripture that is so honest and true, that paints a picture that there are no heroes aside from Jesus, that all of us are broken and sinful All of us waver in our faith, but it is okay because even when we're faithless, you are faithful to uphold your promises. We thank you for your redeeming work done through Jesus and his death on the cross. And we thank you that he is risen again, conquering sin and death so that he can sit at your right hand, interceding on our behalf. We come forward now, Lord, taking communion as a chance to respond and worship to you. In your name we pray, amen.